continuing in Hebrews, we have just left a number of very important topics where we're looking at how our Lord Jesus Christ fulfilled all things of the old covenant, making a new and eternal covenant, and placing Himself in the role of our great high priest. In effect, He is the finality of what the priesthood of the Old Covenant always pointed to. He has also become for us the covenant sacrifice. He has become for us the covenant meal that seals the sacrifice. And He fulfills the role of our mediator and advocate in heaven. These are the things we've been talking about. Three weeks ago, we looked at how Christ fulfilled the tabernacle itself. And how we looked, when we looked at the tabernacle, tabernacle, and I had some visuals for us to show us the different parts of what was in each piece of the tabernacle, from the outer courts on into the tabernacle proper, how how everything in that pointed to not only Jesus Christ, but it pointed to the means by which He would bring salvation, and it also pointed to the means by which the eternal worship of heaven occurs which we enter into in every liturgy okay last week we talked about why is it that Christ's blood had to be shed he died why did his blood have to be shed what does the blood of Christ do for us and we talked about the fact that the blood of Christ was not spilled to appease a wrathful father That's a theology that's out there. It's called the theology of penal substitution. That Christ not only took our place, which Orthodox do believe, substitution. Okay, He took our place. He took all of our sin, all of our humanity into Himself, went to the cross, actually lived His life, then went to the cross, went into Hades, was resurrected and ascended, taking our humanity eternally with Him into heaven eternally so that we might be able to do the same. He's the first among us. But it is not, His blood, His death was not to appease a vengeful, wrathful God that was looking to enact punishment. I mean, think about it. If we say that Jesus was on the cross so that God could pour out His wrath on Jesus rather than us, you've got to make Jesus lesser than God at some point. Because if you believe that Jesus is God... How is God pouring out His wrath upon God? Hmm? That doesn't make sense. But He did take our place. His blood was shed. And what we learned last week from the writer of Hebrews is that the shed blood of Christ was, number one, for the covering of our sins, so that our sins may be forgiven, so that peace might be restored between us and God the Father. But secondly, we talked about the shedding of Christ's blood as the the means by which our conscience would not only be cleansed from all the dead works that we've done in this life, and we continue to do in this life, that our conscience could be washed clean, like I talked about today, which means the shame as the result of our brokenness and our sin can be washed away, right? But we're cleansed, our conscience is cleansed not just from dead works, but our conscience is also transformed 
to where we truly begin to be more attentive to the Holy Spirit who is in us, directing our lives away from dead works and into the glorious and righteous works that Jesus Christ has prepared for us before time. Because we're told in Holy Scripture that we are His workmanship, created in Christ before, right? For good works in Christ. And so our conscience is cleansed by His blood. And that's what we talked about last week. And so we continue today. This is kind of part two on why the blood of Christ had to be shed. Who has Hebrews chapter 9, verses 23 through 28? Go ahead. Therefore it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the truth, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Not that he should offer himself often, as a high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood of another. He then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time, apart from sin, for salvation. Okay, the first verse of that says, Therefore it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with His blood. Now remember last, last week we talked about the copies of the things in heaven that were purified with the blood. Remember what would happen. When God made covenant with His people through Moses, Moses being the covenant representative, Okay, Moses comes down from the mountain, reads them the law, that God had given on the mountain. But then he proceeds to consecrate all of these things to God. Number one, he consecrated the book of the covenant with the blood of the sacrifice. So that law, the covenant, was set aside as holy by the blood. All of the items in the tabernacle, from the table of showbread to the lampstand to the incense, outside the, the altar of sacrifice itself, as far and as well as the, the brazen, the, the uh, brass bowl that would contain the water for ceremonial washing to wash clean, every item used in the sacrificial system and the worship of God was separated, consecrated from its normal use in creation to a completely holy use for God and for God alone. It cannot be used for anything else at that point. And how is it consecrated? By the blood of the sacrifice. Even even the Ark of the Covenant would have the blood of the sacrifice splattered on it. Okay, So when it says that therefore it was necessary that the copies of things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with a better sacrifice than these. Now this poses the question. If the copies of the things in heaven were purified with blood, the blood of the sacrifice, but the heavenly things themselves with the better sacrifice. It brings into question, what are the heavenly things? I mean, think about this. Everything eternally that's always been there in heaven, is it in need of consecration? No, it's not. So what is the heavenly things? 
I take you back to what we talked about last week. Listen to what St. John Chrysostom said. And you'll remember this if you were here. So in Christ, he's talking about the making of the covenant with Moses. So in Christ's sacrifice, where is the book? The book of the covenant. We don't see a book here. He purified the minds of his people. Remember we talked about uh, St. John Chrysostom would also reference Jeremiah 31 where God says, this is the covenant I will make with my people. I will write their law where? In their minds and place it within them. God will dwell in us. So where's the book? It's us. They themselves then were the books of the new covenant. But where are the vessels used in worship? They are themselves now separated for the worship of God alone. And where is the tabernacle? Again, they are. For I will live in them, he says, and move among them. So in the Old Covenant, all the things in the tabernacle consecrated and set aside for particular use of God, for His glory, for His worship, to show forth who He is, were separated by blood. The heavenly things now separated by a better sacrifice then are who? Not what? Us. By the blood of Jesus Christ shed on the cross once and for all, and by our Lord Jesus Christ taking that blood once and for all when He ascended into heaven as our great high priest, He goes before God just like the high priest of old, but it's with His blood. And with that blood, He separates, consecrates us, all who are in Him, for holy use alone. Can you step back for a second? Remember, I asked you a question, or I asked you to ask a question at the end of last Sunday school. And that question was this Why is it that I cannot see myself as the actual temple of the Holy Spirit? Why is it, what is it in me that keeps me from the absolute truth? that Christ revealed, took care of, is expressed by the Apostle Paul, that I have been, you have been, set apart now by baptism filled with the Holy Spirit every time we take Eucharist, every time we do confession. The blood of Christ is enacting in that moment the power for which it was shed. To separate us from the mundane, from the fallen, and place us into the kingdom of light for holy and pure use all of our days. That God intends to pour Himself out, to use you in all of your weaknesses and all of your frailties. He has chosen to do this, to set you aside. Not for this normal stuff. Yeah, we have to work for a living. Yeah, we have to do all these things that we have to do in this world. But while we are here, we have been set aside by the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, consecrated to Him, to be used to reveal the divine to the fallen. All of our days. So the, the heavenly things that were consecrated by the one sacrifice, are not really things at all. They are us. And that's what he's teaching here. Okay. But then he reminds us, going on in that uh, portion of the Scripture that Matt read, 
For Christ has not entered the holy place made with hands, which are copies of the true, that's what they did in the Old Covenant, but into heaven him itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Not that he should offer himself often, as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood of another. He then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now once at the end of the ages, He has appeared to put away sin by the one sacrifice of Himself. Again, everything in the Old Covenant pointed to what He would do. And they were done on an annual basis by the blood of the sacrifice on the Day of Atonement once a year to cover the sins of the people. He didn't go into heaven to do the same thing. He did it to fulfill it with His own blood once and for all. Sacrifices are not being continually made. In fact, you know, there's a lot of people, and I remember when I was Protestant, and I grew up in New Orleans, which is a, it's a Catholic city, make no mistake, okay? And, and the lines were drawn, folks, okay, in, in the hearts of people, in the minds of people. And when I used to think of the Eucharist and what the uh, Roman Catholics, at least it, it appeared they were doing, was they believed Christ was being re-sacrificed every time they went to Mass. In actuality. And that was the perception that I had. And you know, there are people that look at orthodoxy and wonder the same thing sometimes. And we make it very, very clear that the Eucharist is not a re-sacrifice. It is a remembrance. Huge difference. Okay? Now, I've said this before, but I'm going to go ahead and make this clear again because it's very useful for us to have in our minds. Excuse me. That when our Lord Jesus Christ instituted the Lord's Supper that night with His disciples in the upper room, when He said, do this, this is my blood, this is my body took bread, took wine, made it so. He said, do this in remembrance of me. That word remembrance is absolutely critical. It's like this. Today, if you asked Korea Debbie and I to remember our wedding, in today's form of remember, with the use of that word, she and I would begin in our minds conjuring up the image we would remember kind of a lot of things about our service and we'd start sharing it with you. Maybe if you were in our home, we might show you a few pictures of our wedding. Okay? And it goes to that extent. We look back and we try to remember and recall something that happened for us 25 years in the past and express it to you. That's not how a Hebrew would have heard this word remembrance when Jesus said, remember. You go in Jesus' day and you ask, let's say Korea Debbie and I were in that time. And you asked us to remember your wedding. She and I would get together, we would gather as many people as we could that may have been at the wedding. If it was possible, we would even take you to the place that the wedding would have. And we would almost darn near reenact it for you. What was happening? Instead of just a mental recollection, we were reaching into the past and making it tangible in the now. What happened then was becoming a reality in the now in front of you. You got to see it. You got to experience it. Not just hear words about it from mental remembering pictures that we would have. Does that make sense? So when Jesus says, this is my body, this is my blood... 
He is saying that when you do this, and I make this my body and my blood for you, that the power and every purpose of my blood shed and my body broken for us 2,000 plus years ago is made an absolute infinite reality in the moment we come to Eucharist. So, for example... If Christ's blood was shed for the cleansing of conscience, to purify our conscience, to change our spiritual taste buds so that we no longer lavish and run after the things of this world, then even in Eucharist, in that moment that we take it, we are being transformed by the power of the blood of Christ that He shed 2,000 plus years ago. And His body broken, He who eats of my flesh has life in Him. You get that. So it is not a re-sacrifice. There was one sacrifice. But by the grace of God, out of His love for His people, He shares all of the benefits of the one sacrifice for us to experience in the now and be transformed by. Does that make sense? And that's why He's saying He didn't just continue, continue offering. That was the Old Covenant. One offering, once and for all. And the remembrance is for us every time we gather with Him and with one another. Who has Hebrews 10 verses 1 through 4? Please. For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with these same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered? For the worshippers once purified would have had no more consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Okay, here again, he's reaching back to the Day of Atonement. And he's talking about the imperfection yet to be fulfilled in the perfect when Christ would come. The imperfection of the Day of Atonement sacrifice. Yes, it covered their sins, but it could not perfect them. It could not renew and change. You know, one of the key theologies in, or or words of theology I should say, in orthodoxy is the term theosis. Becoming like God, being made like God. They in the Old Covenant could not be made like God. Why? Because there was no union restored yet. And the only way a created thing can become like its creator is to be joined to creator. You see? And so in the Old Covenant, it didn't take care of that. The New Covenant did. Okay? Now... This phrase, for the worshippers once purified would have had no more consciousness of sin. This is huge. We're going to talk about this probably for the remainder of our time. Okay, the old covenant sacrifice on the Day of Atonement was not perfect because it could not change the person from the inside. And what he's saying is, if it had been perfect then the consciousness of the people would be remembering their sins no more. But it didn't happen. I'm going to say it again. For the worshippers once purified, had that been perfect, have had no more consciousness of sin. And what I want to take a, 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 a bit of time on is this. 
What dawned on me when I really was reflecting on that and reading what some of the fathers said about this losing of the consciousness of sin, it dawned on me actually very quickly that the power of the blood of Christ, not only to cover sins, not only to remove the shame and the guilt and all of that of the sins, to cleanse the conscience, but also change the conscience, it's in all of the sacraments. It is particularly in the sacrament of confession and absolution. And that's what stuck out to me. And I want to talk about that for a minute. To do this, I need to remind you of what happened on the Day of Atonement sacrifice, just to keep it fresh on us. I'm going to go through it rather quickly because we've said this a number of times, but this will help remind you. Remember that the Day of Atonement sacrifice called for two goats to be presented. One goat was the goat of sacrifice. Its blood would be shed, it would be killed and burned on the altar. The blood of that goat would be sprinkled all over the people, all over the tabernacle items, into the Holy of Holies in the most holy place where it would be sprinkled on the Bema seat while the priest would pray for hours for the forgiveness of the sins to be of the people, including his own. But what about the other goat? Never forget the other goat. Because the other goat on the Day of Atonement was presented to the people One of the people would be chosen to lead and guide that goat through the people out of the city gate. And they would watch. Out of the city gate, out beyond sight. And then once it got into the wilderness, whoever was leading the goat left the goat to go, never to return again. And what they were told is it is the picture of God's chosen forgetfulness of our sins. That the sins were laid upon the second goat, so to speak. And when the people watched, they beheld their sins leaving them. Leaving them so much that they were at some point out of sight. What was it a testimony? That when God covers the sins of His people... He cast the sins as far as the east is from the west, remembering them what? No more. And I want to tell you that that ministry of the covering of sins, the cleansing of conscience, the cleansing of conscience is all present there in the sacrament of confession. I want to tell you the activity of God in the sacrament of confession that I particularly want to give you some testimonies of this very thing. Okay? There are three activities of God in the sacrament of confession absolution. The first one is this. Obvious. The forgiveness of our sins. When we come to confession and we kneel before Christ and the priest stands by our side, going with us to Christ, we confess our sins and we receive forgiveness. In fact, remember what a sacrament is. A sacrament is God taking the stuff of earth and through something of the stuff of earth working salvation. For example... What does he take for Eucharist of the stuff of earth? Bread and wine. 
that becomes for us His body and blood, which gives us life. Sacrament. God taking something of the earth, through which, by grace, He bestows life upon us. In confession, the stuff of earth is the priest. And you can call me that. You will not offend me. Is the priest. You don't confess to a priest. He comes with you, bringing you before Christ. And where He's used sacramentally is that as you are speaking to Christ and lifting all those things up that the Holy Spirit has revealed to you, your brokenness and your sin, the priest is doing his best prayerfully to listen both to you and to the great physician you're talking to. Because He wants to heal your soul. And we trust that He will give something to us to help us receive the forgiveness of sins and then also to overcome those sins which keep damaging the soul. Do you see that? Sacrament. Okay? Secondly, the, the other ministry, that the second ministry that Christ does in the sacrament of confession is those very prescriptions. Everybody's familiar with the, with the term penance, right? And most people, if you go out and about on the streets and you, say, and you do, let's play word association. I say penance, you say, and they say punishment. And that's not penance. Penance means prescription. Prescription. The great physician that you come to and you speak to and you tell him all of the aches of your soul, just like you would a doctor. And you tell them, a doctor you tell pretty specifically, don't you? Why? What do you want from a doctor? Remedy. Remedy towards what? Healing. I don't want my body to be broken anymore. That's confession. And we anticipate God sharing with us in that moment divinely His prescription that helps His forgiveness settle in and helps us heal in our soul. But then there's the third part that a lot of people don't consider but many have experienced. The sacrament of confession is given to us so that we do not experience shame over the sins we're confessing any longer. You've heard me say many times, not if, when you sin, go to Jesus, your great high priest, first and foremost, and don't delay. Now, how many of you know, many times in our life, we go to Christ and we confess our sins directly to Him, and for some reason, even though intellectually we know that He has forgiven our sin, we leave that time of prayer still for some reason filled with shame. And the reason for that is, it's not that Christ didn't forgive you in that moment. That is not the reality. The reality is something in our broken humanity is keeping us from the experience of the forgiveness. Because His forgiveness is complete. His forgiveness casts the sin as far as the east is from the west. But we didn't get to experience that because of something broken in us. Sacrament of confession. The grace of God by the blood of Jesus Christ is there to heal that part so that we can receive what Christ is giving us in the moment. I want to share with you three testimonies of people that have experienced all of that by the blood of Christ in the sacrament of confession. The first one was way before I was Orthodox. I was just beginning to look 
at orthodoxy, and well, not even orthodoxy. I was not looking at orthodoxy. I was looking at the first 600 years of the church. It turned out to be orthodoxy, <laughs> but I wasn't thinking that. And one of the things I was studying, because I never believed in the sacrament of confession, me and Jesus. Me and Jesus. But I had started studying it, reading the fathers, looking at how they did confession in the early church. And at that time, uh, Korea Debbie and I had a Bible study group in our house at a church that I was pastoring that, that went after the unchurched. And every Friday night, we would have a Bible study in our house. And we had this one guy who was a young guy, probably in his mid-twenties, that had been coming to the church for a while and was coming to our Bible study. And this guy, this guy was very nice, but he was not a hugger. He was distant. You know, you can always tell when you go up, and, and you know me, I'm a hugger, right? So I go up to hug, and when somebody goes, yeah, right, you know they're not a hugger at this point. And that's okay. You respect their privacy, and we trust that someday God will heal them, and they'll at one point hug. But, <laughs> but um, that's the way he was. Well, one night, he shows up. This had to be 9.30 at night at my house unannounced. And he knocks on the door. And I answer the door, and it was him, and I said, come on in. And uh, he said, I just went and saw the movie Luther. It was a movie about the life of Martin Luther. It had come out at this time. And we go and sit down, and he says, you know, in the first scene of this movie, Martin Luther is doing confession with his father confessor. And I said, really? And then he goes on, but he kept circling back in the conversation to this scene of confession. And after about the fourth time he did this, I looked at him. I said, man, do you want to do confession? He said, yeah. I said, I am not a priest. But you know what? I've been, I have been looking at this, and I do have a little prayer rite of confession. Let's go in my office. And we went in my office, and he sat right across from me, and we went through this little confession liturgy. And as soon as it was time for him to just talk about the sins, he lost it. And he was confessing a decade of sexual sin after sexual sin. And it was pouring out in tears right in front of me. And then he'd start, he was done. And I said the words of absolution, which you know are not the words of a priest, but the words of Jesus Christ. I said them, and like the snap of a finger, his tears of shame and agony over a decade of sexual sin started turning into tears of joy and release and relief before my very eyes. And in that moment, God said to me, that is why it's a sacrament in my church. He'd been in church off and on for ten years, but never the release of shame. You get that? I'm going to say, well, I was going to do three. I'm, I'm out of time, and, and I want to get to this one. And the, the person that I'm going to be, that, I, that I'm speaking about, no name, but gave me permission to be able to share this. So, a uh, person came to do first-time confession. Probably, I don't know, 60 years old or so. A while back. And never done confession before. Comes to confession, and... 
He confesses that in the very first stages of his marriage, early, early on when he was very young, he committed adultery one time. Which was would have had to have been 30 plus, 40, 40 plus years ago. One time. That act devastated his conscience. He had lived, and he told me, he has lived every day to win the Husband of the Year award since. The wife doesn't know. The wife never knew. But he lived and dedicated himself to be Husband of the Year, and all of that couldn't remove his shame. Because every day he was tortured by the remembrance of his mistake. We do confession. I give the words of absolution, off he goes. Two weeks later, he comes into my office. And he says, Father Mark, no matter how hard I try, I can't even remember the details of what I did anymore. What happened? What did I say God does with our sins when we confess them and He forgives? He casts them as far as the east is from the west, remembering them no more. What God saw in this His beloved child was that the only way to remove Him from such long-standing shame was to gift Him with an ability that only God has. He removed it from His memory. He released Him. He forgave the sin. He empowered this man to go and sin no more. And He made it so that the shame of 40 plus years was gone. Do you see the activity of God? That by His blood shed and through the sacrament of confession, the forgiveness of sins is granted. The power to go... Because remember, when Jesus forgave sins, He doesn't just say, your sins are forgiven. What's the next thing that quickly follows? Go and what? Jesus doesn't tell someone to do what He is not fully able to empower a person to accomplish. Because He's a righteous and just and perfect God. The sacrament of confession, by the way, and I know many many people outside of orthodoxy teach it differently, it's not an option. We need to stop treating it like an option. Every sacrament is God's wisdom and a grace gift to each and every person in His holy church to save them, to bring them to Himself fully. The Episcopalians, even conservative Anglicans, sometimes even the Methodists dabble in confession. It is true. There are various parts of Protestantism that do at least try to engage this, thank God. But most of them say it's an optional thing. Well, who created man? Answer it. Who created man? Who fully understands each and every one of man's brokenness? Who knows how to save man? We're together on this then. If that's the case, and He gave us the sacraments for our salvation, 
Perhaps we ought to trust Him. And come and let Him be the Christ, the great high priest, who shed His blood to forgive our sins, cleanse and transform our conscience and our minds, and to free us from the satanic shame that remains. Because it is satanic. Who Christ frees is free indeed. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's stand.